0: Shanaz Gul was charged with killing Mustafa Zaidi. The ensuing trial took place in a magistrate's court headed by Kaur a civil servant. The proceedings took on a life of their own, breathless tabloid-style coverage in the papers, huge headlines, photographers chasing Shanaz and taking photos of her, her husband, and even her lawyer, Sher Muhammad Sheikh. The coverage was so sensationally awful that three newspapers were issued contempt of court notices by a high court bench. Two publishers even had to apologize. The daily trip of stories offers an insight into what it must have been like for Shannaz to have to defend herself in court. And over 50 years later, we have to ask, what is it like when women enter the criminal justice system in Pakistan? I'm Sabah Imtiaz. And I'm Tuba Masood. And this is Notes on a Scandal. Season 2 the state versus Shahnaz goal.
1: To discuss all things Shana's Mustafa, and whether Pakistani trials bear any resemblance to legal dramas on Netflix and how women are treated when they pursue justice is the lawyer Sara Malkani, who joins this episode of Notes on a Scandal. Sara Malkani is a high court advocate with over 10 years of experience, particularly in criminal litigation, family law, labor and employment law, and international human rights law. Sara Malkani also managed to win the first ever conviction for domestic violence under a 2013 law in Pakistan's Sin province and has also represented an online harassment case, which are very difficult to pursue in Pakistan, which led to the conviction of the accused. Sara, thank you very much and welcome to Notes on a Scandal. Thank
2: you. Very happy to be here.
1: So, Sara, can you tell us a little bit about if you knew anything about Mustafa Zaidi or this yeah. case before we launched our absolutely not award-winning mm-hmm. podcast?
2: So I actually heard about this case a few years ago. And the first thing that I thought when I heard about the case was, why has it a book been written on it that I know of and somebody needs to write a book about it? And I have witnesses to that. I have proof to that. I said, you know, I wish I had time to do it. I'm not going to be able to do it, but we need a book on this. And so I think I heard about it on Twitter. I think you had posted something about how you started this project. And I think this was last year sometime in October. And I got so excited. I said, somehow the cosmos, you know, has listened. (laughs) And I think, you know, two amazing people are doing this project. And how I heard about this case was, so the lawyer who represented Shana's goal in the border trial His son, who I believe passed away recently, was also a lawyer practicing in Karachi. And I met him in court one day and he was representing a party in a case that I was involved in. Interestingly, he was representing Karachi Gymkhana in a case because I think his father was also closely involved with Karachi Gymkhana. And he was an interesting, you know, sociable guy and struck up a conversation. And I think, I mean, he was just a memorable character. And so I, I think I spoke, I think I went home and I kind of was just telling my family, you know, how my day in court went. And I said, oh, I met this guy. I think his son's name is, uh, was it sheikh I think yeah, his son's Darashay. name was, yeah. right? So my father mentioned that, oh, he is the son of a very famous lawyer who was known as Shiru Sheikh. I think Shir was his nickname, but a very well-known, prominent lawyer from the 70s, 80s, criminal lawyer. And obviously that piqued my interest given the profession that I'm in. And he mentioned that, oh, this really famous case that he did was the Shanaz School murder case. And then my mother was there and she said, oh, yes, the murder case of the famous poet Mustafa Zaidi. And then they talked a little bit about it. And then I thought, wow, this is so interesting. Just the fact that A woman like Hedshina's girl being the kind of well-known socialite that she was, is charged with murder and then spends a lot of time in jail and is denied bail in a case that kind of is making headlines for months, a long time ago. So I thought that's very interesting. And, you know, from a social perspective, from an anthropological perspective. And so anyway, that's a very long answer to (laughs) So the question of how I came to know about the case, I had not heard about it before. So I'm talking about this. This is, I think, back in 2014, I think, that I first came to even know of it um, through having yeah. met this lawyer. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, it's really interesting also, like, the fact that once you bring this case up, it sparks so many memories and conversations. And, and yeah, he was very closely involved with Jim Khan. I think he was, like, one of the longest-running yeah. presidents they had, like, for many years. And in fact, what's really interesting is that Jim Khanna gets mentioned a lot in the coverage of this case. There's one story really? where they don't mention. Yeah. So there's one where there's one where they interview like uh, one journalist interviews servers working at a club, which has to be either Synth Club or Jim Khanna. And, you know, talking about the who Shanaz goes to Jim Khanna with. And if she's not with her husband, then are there are other men there. And, you know, how many times a night do they see her? And I think somebody else also told, actually, somebody else wrote, wrote about this case later and, and recalled quite vividly that they would see Naz and Brana, and often dancing together, which, you know, obviously could once once you've had a relationship with with a lawyer I mean you've worked with them so closely of course they can go dancing if they're in the same but it's so much of it as context but you know I was curious because I think a lot of lawyers know this case really well because of the fact that the Sindh High Court Sindhan Balochistan Chief Justice the High Court took notice of it at the time and so it became legal precedent and I guess now it's so common obviously in Pakistan for judges to take notice of high profile cases so I'm kind of curious what kind of reaction do you think this must have sparked or has it really kind of set a precedent where judges want to take notice of things that are in the news, especially like a high profile person is suspiciously found dead?
2: I gather because I've been listening to the first season of your podcast that this was in a sense, would it be correct to say that this was one of, this was the first or maybe one of the very few first, for very one of the first few murder cases in the history of Pakistan that sparked this kind of intense press coverage? Would that Do you think that would be correct to say? I think so. There were divorce cases that had been publicized a lot
1: before, like high society divorces, but not two things combined together, right? So they must have been uh, like this.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I think subsequent to that, we do know of these of murder cases and other criminal cases that do get covered by the press extremely intensely. Even now, I'm just thinking, for example, of an ongoing case, the Dwa case, which Mm -hmm. I think to this day is being covered. I mean, I think yesterday there was also some proceeding in the city court about it. And I saw people running around with cameras and running around with this. that obviously, you know, often does have an impact on the courts. And it has, you know, we've seen cases. I mean, even the Shazid Jatoi case recently mm-hmm. where relatively recently where the Supreme Court took some motor notice mm-hmm. of that case. But, you know, of the fact and it's often kind of I think when we talk about it, it's kind of considered that, you know, that this practice of taking Swamoto and then also this practice of course responding to how the media is covering a case. You know, we take that to be something that's relatively new or relatively unprecedented. We often tend to talk about how social media has changed things so dramatically and has even changed access to justice. And we talk about media trials and how those are becoming more and more common. But I think what we see from the court case also is that, you know, it's made not such a new occurrence, right? Mm-hmm. So this is um, all the way back in the 70s, right? This is like just the beginning of the decade that you have. I think at that time he was, I think it's mentioned in, the, I think he was not the chief justice, but I think he was the second most senior judge of the high. Right? I think they said senior puny judge at that time. I think he was the chief justice. He was Abdul Qadir yeah. Sheikh, right? Yeah. Abdul Qadir Sheikh, yeah. Sheikh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's, it seems. I mean, it's pretty clear that it was in response to how, to the intense press mm. coverage around the case. And I do wonder though, it could have been that, that, but I also think, and one of the things that comes across also in the first season of your podcast is, I mean, it's still the case, but especially at that time when the city was much smaller, the elite mm. of the city was so interconnected and so mm. intertwined. And Justice Abdul Qadir Sheikh was very much a part of that circle, to the best of my knowledge. Yeah, I think he was. He went on to become chairman of the Board of Governors of Karachi Grammar School. He (laughs) was a very connected and, you know, I also spoke to some people who knew him quite well over the years. And they've mentioned that he definitely roamed around in the Shinar's Club Karachi Gymkhana circles. He definitely must have bumped into them. At some mm. point, how well he knew them, I don't know. But the fa- but that must also have impacted the decision to intervene in a case like that, which is we knew. I mean, not only unusual, but eventually the Supreme Court on a appeal said mm. that should never have happened. That was illegal. Yeah.
1: yeah. Obviously, the judges are saying things that they are affect reading online or or in the papers, and really they are part of that same society that they that they're looking at in court every day, just from a distance. Do you think that's still the case? That there's like a different standard or something different about when there's a case of their milieu, let's say the Sinhala grammar crowd that comes in front of them.
2: Yeah, I think so. I think and as as Karachi has grown so much, right? The population has grown so much in the seventies. I don't know what the size of the bench of the at that time, the that that Balochistan High mm. Court was combined, but obviously, mm-hmm. subsequently, there was a need to separate the courts, which makes sense given the population So I would expect that at that time in the judiciary, as well as in the civil service, right, bureaucracy, there wasn't as much a diversity of, or there wasn't diversity of even ethnicity. And you do see more of that now. I would say that now we do have judges that come from, and they come from circles and they come from, you know, even backgrounds and even ideologies that are different. And you see some diversity there also. But of course, are they impacted by that? Are they impact, they're impacted by their social lives? Are impacted by what they read? They're very much impacted, I think, by how they're covered in the media, how they're perceived in the media. I mean, even recently, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, I think Justice umarata Vanyal said in I think it was during a hearing, he said that I do read what they say about us in the social in social media, you know. He so so they are cognizant of that, and I think it would kind of be inhuman not to be cognizant mm. of that, right? I think Uba, maybe we can
1: talk a little bit about the attention it seems to have gotten in City Court, like how many people mm-hmm. came to
0: see Chenaz. So the one thing that we got from a lot of people was how they actually would go to court just to catch a glimpse of her online. And everyone just wanted to see her, to see her beauty. Do you think that's something that still happens today? Do people go to court to look at people who are being presented, who are being questioned and stuff like that? Yeah, I think it does. I think, you know, even to this day, though, for somebody
2: of Shana's girl's class background and social stature to be a defendant in a murder trial, is highly unusual, even in this day and age. So I think that's something that in and of itself, if there was something similar, would just be cause for, you know, that would be very awe-inspiring for people. Mm. But yes, but you know, like, I I mean, cases which do make it high-profile cases that are covered very intensely in the media, and when they're being covered, courtrooms are Back. Media personnel are often not allowed inside court, but they're usually directly outside court. And sometimes, I mean, in, in more recent cases, I've seen the judges have tried to be very strict about making sure that only parties and their lawyers are in court and everybody else is outside. But even that becomes very difficult to implement. And and yeah, so definitely, you still see that in some cases, they're just attracting so much public attention and how that's impacting um, how the proceedings are being done. And even the parties involved are often, um, you know, you see them that they, because they need more protection, and the court has ordered often that they get police protection. They're just being surrounded everywhere they go by police officers. You know, you just say colloquially that, oh, the trial is becoming, or the court proceedings are becoming a media circle. So, you do yeah. see that.
1: As you said, it's so highly unusual for somebody like Shana's goal to be a defendant, but also for just a woman to be on trial in such a public way. And I think Tuva and I are always amazed looking at the coverage, looking at the things, even now, 50 years later, people have to say about her, is that it's really it's really striking just how women are treated, honestly, when they yeah. come into court or come into the legal system. And I'm curious now, as someone who, you know, represents represents a lot of cases like this of sexual harassment as well as of domestic violence, like how are women treated in the criminal justice system in the year t- 2022, you know, when they file charges specifically of, you know, Things that either have nature of sexual harassment, or you know, if they've been in a consensual relationship that has turned violent. What are the kinds of reactions from the police, the prosecution, the government agencies involved?
0: And also, how do the women themselves feel when they're in court and talking about this? You know, I think in some ways things are getting better very,
2: very slowly, but it's still the case that courts are not at all welcoming for women, and especially young women, especially young girls. You know, they're just and. I mean, the the hostility is there at so many levels, right? It's just a environment itself, which is still very male-dominated. Now, in Karachi, at least, you're seeing more and more women judges. But obviously, the majority of judges is still men. And outside Karachi, you know, they're still hugely skewed in favor of men. And and lawyers also mostly men. And they are bringing in their stereotypes and their prejudices into court. And it makes a difference if a woman is being represented by, say, a lawyer who is kind of doing a lot of strong advocacy on her behalf. But if not, then there's like every effort by the lawyer who's on the other side to, you know, to to discredit her, to demean her to attack her credibility during examinations or cross-examinations, to ask irrelevant questions, just to tie her down. And even if judges are not actively also participating in this, because sometimes you also see judges make moralizing statements against women who've come to court for domestic violence or sexual harassment cases, even if they're not actively participating in it, they're not actively censuring lawyers for this kind of behavior either. So, yeah, having said that, like I'm saying, it's getting better and it's getting better slowly, primarily because you're seeing, you know, more women judges and not all the time. But sometimes you do see women judges more sensitive to these issues and you're seeing more women lawyers. So they're doing advocacy on behalf, but there's still a a long way to go. And here I'm talking about cases where the women have brought forward complaints. I mean, my clients generally have very credible evidence backed complaints, right? Now, in, in a case like of that of Shanna's gold, where, you know, she's a defendant in a murder trial and probably in the eyes of society, she's already committed a crime that's bigger than murder. She spent mm-hmm. the night with, she was found lying mm-hmm. unconscious with a man when she's yeah. being accused of having an affair and so on. So, I mean, how she was being treated, I can't imagine that it was. I think her class background, her class mm-hmm. privilege might have given her some protection back then. But I can still expect her to have faced quite a bit of... uh, yeah.
1: yeah. That actually gives us a good opening into talking about Sharnaz's deposition in court. Mm. Now, obviously, we have a very incomplete court file. I think it's kind of established that there was some kind of relationship between the two. But obviously, in court, she's saying, no, I never knew this man. We had no affair. There was no relationship. He was the one who was stalking. It seems quite obvious to us that this is what her lawyer agreed was the best course of defense forward. Do you think this is believable? Or And one other thing just to add on is that I spoke to somebody who was a, quite young at the time, but was involved in the prosecution. And he said, actually, even though like all of this came up in court, the fact that they were having an affair or even the flyers, she wasn't being charged with adultery. And so that's why a lot of this, what we think is evidence is not even what the prosecution was trying to put forward. It was, there
2: was an extra, of course, but really the case was, did she kill him or not? Yeah. And from the deposition that you sent to me, you know, it's pretty standard. The the way in which the questions are framed is that the judge is going to ask the defendant questions about each and every piece of evidence that could potentially be used to incriminate her or be relied upon in the judgment, right? And he's pointing to, I'm assuming, statements that have been made by other witnesses and other evidence also. But it becomes pretty clear from just that, you know, and I haven't seen anything else in the case filed, that there really isn't anything substantial to really rely on, right? A a lot of speculations, there are no eyewitnesses to the act itself. There would be no concrete physical evidence, it seems at all, right, that would be able to incriminate her. You can tell just from that, that it's really clutching its drawers. And you can clearly see why she would be acquitted, that there seemed to have been nothing there.
1: One of the things you said is in the court of public opinion, she was probably also guilty of having an affair. But what's also interesting from a lot of Shanaz's friends or even people is that there was also the sense that she had been trapped into this somehow, even from people who don't like even from Mustafa side, let's say, no one actually thinks that she did it. Like she physically did it. They think, she was like a conduit, like she opened the door for the she actual person who did it. Yeah, she was an enabler, but she's not like the stone cold murderer. What do you think would have happened with the prosecution here, you know, who has to prove this case with not a lot of solid evidence to go on?
2: Yeah, and, you know, they have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, right? Because mm-hmm. this is, you know, it's a criminal trial. So you do have to have very strong evidence. And look, in general, proving and building a murder is very difficult. Where you don't have witnesses, it's extremely difficult because then you're really building the case on circumstantial evidence. And then you need really good and solid physical evidence, which in this case, it seems to me, and again, I haven't even read the whole file. So I don't know. I haven't looked at the chemical reports because I know that Mm -hmm. she was taken to the hospital and then there was some, they found some drugs on her. But was Mustafa Zaidi's autopsy conducted immediately or was it conducted much later no, it was conducted immediately. There were two autopsies.
1: Yeah. So there was one that happened immediately and then there was one that happened that he was exhumed and another autopsy. Was I think that was like Actually,
0: or 11 days later.
1: Yeah, and the results of that autopsy is why the police then went ahead with filing a charge Included sheet. Murder, foul play. Yeah. As a result
0: of
2: the second autopsy.
1: As a result of the second autopsy and the analysis yeah. in that. And so even though that's not, it doesn't definitively say Mustafa was murdered. It definitively says that there's some substance. There was a lot of, Speculation again that you know there were torture signs found on his body, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But yeah, there was second autopsy. Really, kind of the recommendations on that made the police file a case. Their initial assumption was suicide. They walked in, saw
2: Mustafa dead, channels unconscious. Um What else? And, and there, there were no very paper. obvious physical marks yeah. of of him, and there was no other signs of foul play. Yeah. Was, I think there was no nobody breaking in, evidence of anything like that. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
0: and then even the second autopsy, did that indicate that? Yeah. But again, that was very unclear what exactly, like, what was the, what was the dose, what was what was
1: going on? In- so basically what happened is that they did an autopsy, then they had it reviewed by a medical board. And the medical board, yeah, and then they, on the basis of those findings, they did a second autopsy. It didn't help that Shahnaz also had something in her system because they also did a chemical analysis of hers. So they couldn't prove, and I think that's essentially why she got acquitted, is because they couldn't prove... Um, if they, if they said, like, she killed him, then who gave her the drugs, right? So there was clearly
2: something in both of their Yeah, she was sound unconscious. If she put poison him, why would she just sit down and be like, oh, I'm going to take some, something and just, you know.
1: You haven't, clearly we should just spend a lot of, like, time together. Tuba and I have done all of the maths and calculations. I'm sure you have. Yeah. We've thinking how long do you have to sit there and what time do you have you to work there while the other person is dying? So when they interviewed the doctor who had come and examined her on the scene, they asked him all these questions. Like, do you think she was faking? Like, do you think she was actually not Mm -hmm. unconscious and she was just pretending to be asleep? Like, how were her reflexes at the time? And the doctors, she seemed like she was unconscious, but it's not like she was fully... Okay. Yeah. Uh,
2: I mean, even going before the trial, you mentioned the investigation and people not trusting that, you know, Mm -hmm. so that's something I think that is a consistent, you know, police investigations are not trusted because... They're not good, right? They're not, and they're not good for many reasons. And I think that's a thread that's probably from the time Pakistan was created, and that's something that runs across. I mean, I don't know about the whole world, but definitely across South Asia, right? Like our current police system and really set up is a hangover from the colonial era, right? Our Criminal procedure codes, even our police rules and just a lot of the investigation procedure and processes, it's actually not undergone a lot of um, substantive changes. And for many reasons, police investigations are to this day. Not trusted. And that is often the reason why even now you see courts kind of stepping in, right? And saying we're going to direct the police to conduct the investigation a certain way, or we even have court precedent where courts say that investigations will be conducted under the supervision mm-hmm. of the court. And now there's a lot of pushback to that as well. Mm-hmm. So for example, here the Supreme Court, when it did order that the Sinhai Court taking Sumoto jurisdiction and directing the police. To kind of reinvestigate the case was an improper exercise of his jurisdiction. We still have judgments like that, also, but the law and the way that is practiced is still not consistent. So that doubt on the way that the police is investigating the case and that also being, and then the media also pushing that. And then with the SOMOTO notice being taken by the Supreme Court, I can just imagine that now, like, all the higher ups in the police are like, "Oh, we have to do something. We have to do something to show, right, mm-hmm. that we're actually really, and if unless we actually file a charge sheet against someone, people are just going to think we're really lazy and incompetent. And, you know, who's the person? To do it against since you know the person who was there at the scene of the so that's something that I think that's not unusual, and uh, even to this day we see that as cases are being covered more intensely in the media for better or worse, we see the police changing its investigation. Findings. So even, for example, in this Doua Zahira case that's ongoing right now, which is a child marriage potential kidnapping rape case, we've seen that the investigation officers found one thing a couple of months ago and now there's that. And then in terms of how criminal trials are actually conducted, you mentioned that you what you see on Netflix and what you see on courtroom dramas, a lot of times I also thought that maybe that's how criminal trials would be conducted, but then I was disabused of that notion (laughs) when I actually came and saw especially here in in Pakistan right how our courts conduct trials where you you don't see a lot of that kind of seamless kind of questioning and cross questioning and then these great aha moments right where something great is revealed and somebody you don't see that because a lot of the times here you know also our examinations and cross examinations are not recorded in real time we don't have a stenographer. So every time a lawyer asks a question and the question is answered, there's a pause. And if the question is asked in Urdu, for example, or Sinni or whatever language, the judge is translating the question into English and then he is reading it out to the typist and he is saying, this was the question and now this is the answer. About 50% of the time, this will be a misrepresentation of the question and it will be a misrepresentation of the answer. So then as a lawyer, you're telling the judge, no, no, I asked this question And then you're trying to phrase it in the correct English. And then the person who's answering the question, they or their lawyer are saying, no, no, I didn't say that. I said something else. And so what's actually being said and was reflected in the transcript are often very different. And of course, what does that do to the evidentiary value of statements? That's also sometimes very questionable. So often, like that kind of flow of question answer. And those dramatic moments are often actually uh, moments that are sometimes reduced to a comedy of errors for this reason. So
1: if your answers in your trial are not even being recorded properly, that's just a clear like lack of justice, not even a barrier to justice. But for women who are going into the city courts or into legal proceedings now, especially clients like yours who have, as you said, like clear evidence to back up their judges or bringing forward complaints, like what are the barriers now to having, getting
2: justice in a park, Sunny, I mean, is there- does she Sunny? I mean, a lot of the times not, but even when we do hear of cases, right? And I think we often do hear of convictions in in cases and rape cases, or even in sexual harassment cases There are often now, I think, victories being reported in proceedings before the ombudsperson. Even let's stick to cases where the outcome seems to be good. But if you look behind that and you look at the process, that the woman had to actually get there you know that in itself is we're talking about these proceedings taking years in cases of rape or sexual abuse or even sexual harassment and you know often we're seeing women and the lawyers having to go to court or having to go to the tribunal and you know at least 50 if not 70 percent of the time just getting having to see adjournments Nothing is happening, right? Waiting in court sometimes for three or four hours just for the prosecutor to show up. If it's a case where the prosecutor has to show up, they're not showing up. Waiting for the I.O. to show up to give their statement, the investigation officer is not showing up. Now, if the trial has gone on for two years and the witnesses have not even been called to the stand yet, right? And then two years down the line is their turn to come up and they're look, we're no longer investi- invested in the case, or we've moved. To another city, we've moved on with their lives. I have cases where, for example, some of the witnesses haven't eventually been able to testify in court just because the incident happened years ago. And that in the meanwhile, they're also facing backlash from people, right? They're facing backlash from the person who's accused their family sometimes you know in cases where families are sometimes and I'm talking about like domestic violence cases also where sometimes maybe families are supportive for the first few months after a while they're just like let's just go ahead just just move on with our lives why are you still doing so they kind of are then even if they have the family support to begin with which is not that common after a while is going to tap out right so in those cases where you're seeing success, it's really not. Unfortunately, I can't say that it's like a merit of the system. It's really the perseverance of the survivor or her family, or you know the advocates on her behalf, or all of them combined. Really, sometimes it is just the combination of that mm. that works, and it's kind of like in spite of all the barriers that the system has put in, she's managed to make it through. Not not because of it, and so. So until that changes and until the onus is going to be on the survivor to get justice, you're not really going to, I think, see that kind of systemic change coming through the justice system. How would it be? You know what? I have thought about this as well, to be honest. And just because I feel like this is, in a sense, I mean, I don't know, have you guys, Have you? do you think there's any similarity to a case of this nature where both parties involved come from a certain class background, have a certain place in society? And then for the woman to get tried, not just for any ordinary crime, but for murder, and then for it to get the kind of, to be out in the public the way that it was. I mean, do you think there's been anything
1: like that, Sid? Oh, definitely not in Pakistan. I think obviously in the US, I'm sure you mm-hmm. have cases where like a yeah. socialite is accused of ordering a hit on her on her husband or vice versa. And I think, yeah, but definitely not in Pakistan. Um, yeah. I
0: mean, Italy. you did have the whole uh, Gucci thing that happened. Yeah, exactly. But not in Pakistan. No, sure. I, don't yeah. think, I don't think it has like something similar in Pakistan.
2: But I think maybe I can just speculate to toward- what, Tuba has said and I don't know but maybe in one way that I think it might be different I mean your know, Shana's school didn't get bail did she ever get bail or did she, she, did. Was she, she did. at one point right? At one point but so, yeah but after a long time but after hmm. a long time and I think maybe one way I mean over time and there has been heightened sensitivity to what women go through in prison and I think a lot of that has to do with the number of women who were imprisoned under the Zina laws Right during Xiaol Haq's time. And that's when we saw the women prison population increase quite yeah. substantially. But again, most women who were in prison, maybe all women who were in, imprisoned under these laws, again, did not come from the upper strata of society, right? Which is not because women in the upper strata of society obviously were objectively less likely, but just because this was really a law. I mean, the criminal justice system is definitely weaponized against generally lower class Mm. people. So that led to kind of a lot of advocacy against, you know, the plight of women in prisons. I would think that one thing that you maybe wouldn't see now is for a woman to be denied bail for such a long period of time. And actually, just one case that has occurred to me, actually where in the Zahir Jafar and Nur Mukaddam mm-hmm. case, Zahir Jafar's mother, who again came from a very top strata of society, she was in prison, right? Mm-hmm. She was in prison yeah. as an accomplice and she did get bail, I think after several weeks, but mm-hmm. eventually she did get bail. She got bail before her husband got bail. So I think maybe one way in which it would be different would be this.
1: I think at one point the prosecution said, oh, you shouldn't give her bail because one of our star witnesses will change his testimony if she gets out. Which, you know, I think in the Zahir Jafar for the case makes, I can even understand that as a reason because the social dynamics are so different. But Shana's, I mean, again, you either have to cast her as a stone-cold murderer for you to believe mm-hmm. that she can have so much undue influence on a witness. But actually, my question was a bit different. So let's assume this is 1970 and you're a lawyer practicing. Then, the story comes out in the paper. Who do you want to defend? And how do you think you would defend? So different. I would,
2: like, love to defend Shana's goal. I think I think this would be like a dream case for any lawyer, dream case definitely for any criminal lawyer. I think looking back, lawyers of that generation would tell me that Shiroshi's reputation, he was always, he was a brilliant lawyer, but I think he really became known as a lawyer. So just selfishly from a professional standpoint, I think it would be. A dream case, very criminal lawyer to do. No, but I mean, I think the. you saying would you be on the prosecution side or the defense side? Would have Yeah, yeah.
1: Would you have represented Mustafa's family? You know, in the in, let's say BLM party in there, and she you knows she did. Ashanaz actually yeah. did have a female lawyer as well. A lawyer really? called yes, a lawyer called Memuna. Mm-hmm. I don't know her full name, but everyone called her Moon. So that was her You're nickname. In court, And there's a lot of photos also Aww. of Shanna's with her lawyer. I don't know in what capacity she was either assisting Sheikh or yeah. she was a separately engaged lawyer. But would you have also made the case that, you know, my client was found unconscious and she doesn't know what happened to her? Or would you have made the case that my client's also been found unconscious and maybe
2: she's the one being murdered here? I mean, based on whatever. And again, this is mostly based on what I'm hearing through your season one of your podcast, right? I would be very doubtful that Chana's whole again is a stone cold murderer, and and really her her the most plausible explanation. Again, nobody would know given that there are no eyewitnesses and I think you guys have mentioned that really eventually it's really only Shahnaz Kola and Mustafa Zaydi who would mm-hmm. know what happened in that room and they might also not know for many hours what was going on in that room if both of them were unconscious at mm-hmm. the same time. You know, but I think this maybe just seems to be a case where two people were together and maybe they were partaking in these drugs, medicinal or otherwise, and lost consciousness and one of them had a really adverse reaction to these drugs and died and the other one was unconscious for a long period of time and then she woke up. And so I'm inclined very strongly to believe based on what has been presented before me that Shana's goal was innocent. And I think the immediate reaction of the police, I mean, we can't know that it was necessarily a case of suicide. I don't think Musa left a suicide note or anything like that, right? There was nothing. So it could be both it could be a case of suicide or it could just be a case of either overdosing or just having a bad reaction to whatever he had taken, or, you know, it so to me, I would be inclined, just based on whatever there is, to to think that she's innocent, and that, in fact, the whole push to charge her is being driven by media and public sensationalism mm. and outrage. And to some extent, I think also a moral reaction right like a moralizing judgment on her and just in light of that I'm I would be inclined to advocate for
1: her. But can I twist this around for a second and sure, ask you in a complete conspiracy like theory that we have. Of course. Yeah. Is, do you think I mean obviously I'm just asking you as somebody interested maybe not a complete 100% legal opinion here but is there a world in which it's plausible that Mustafa is the one who instigated all of this, that he invites Shana's over, he drugs her with the intention of either killing her or having her found, you know, unconscious You're in another man's house, British. in a compromising situation,
2: as they like to say in Pakistan, in another man's house, and then decided to kill himself? Yeah, actually, now that you mention it, I think that would definitely have happened. As in, and then you're also saying that he, the decision to kill himself, was maybe not. He hadn't made it when she, before she showed up, but he made it during the time that that she was there. I don't know. Possibly, we don't know this. Okay. Obviously, uh, like we don't know what
1: his state of mind is on that day, and what happens. I mean, also the as when Duba, and I have done try to recreate this. We try to imagine: can you sit there in a room with the woman who you love, unconscious and possibly yeah. dying? And how long do you sit there for before you decide you're not, you're going to take something to? Yeah,
2: no, I think that's definitely theory, but look, from a defense lawyer's perspective, right? What I would do is, in a case like this, I wouldn't need to, I wouldn't go into presenting alternative theories. Because for me, it would be prosecution. Try building a case beyond reasonable doubt based on what you got. And I'm just going to pick holes in that I'm not going and which is why if you see again not having read the whole file but the deposition transcript that you gave me I'm I'm assuming which is what happens in many murder trials also that the defense is often not even putting its own witnesses forward Mm. or it's not even putting its own counter evidence forward all it's relying on the defense's case is going to be the answers to that deposition right right? and Mm -hmm. then the defense is really built on looking at what the prosecution gave and picking holes in it. I think there could be a range of alternates. And I think it's really interesting to come up with these theories, again, based on the wonderful background that you guys have built. But I'm just saying from a defense lawyer's perspective, I would just be like, I, I don't need to build a theory. I don't need to explain why she was there. I don't even need to give you guys a minute-by-minute account of what she was doing mm-hmm. there. I just, need to bi- I just need to pick holes in what you guys have presented. And there are many holes. Okay.
1: That re- lays to rest our most, our most current conspiracy theory. But that's an incredible way of explaining how this case happened in court. Sarah, thank you so much. I don't know if there are any questions that we didn't ask you or anything else you want to add or any other
2: thoughts you have on our, on this case or anything else? No, I think that's it. And I just think I'm so glad that a book is being written about this. I think it's such a fascinating case and i just love the way that you guys are building the just the social setting in which space it like really brings all of this to life and it's yeah i mean and for me it's like all my my like my interests combined right like history of karate combined with the murder combined with you know prominent lawyers is just (laughs) it's so it's just really fascinating